Welcome back to episode two of the Via Emmaus podcast. My name is Anton Brooks, and I'm here with David Strock, pastor of Preaching and Theology here at Aquaquam Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. We're going to start with Matthew 4.14. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What does it mean? Was When it says temptation, was it mean that, that Jesus was literally thinking about doing what the devil was saying? Like he was actually tempted to do what he was saying? Um... I think yes, but again, because Jesus is both God and man, his experience of temptation is like ours, um, and it's also different, right? Um, Because he is fully divine, it's not as though he could have sinned. Like, it's impossible for Jesus to have sinned. Right. And yet, that does not mean uh, that Jesus did not experience in the flesh, in his human nature, um, a real temptation. Right. Right? And, and so in, in this way, he actually experiences a temptation that is far greater than you or I have ever experienced. Right? Because if we are tempted and we give in to that temptation, then the temptation is over mm-hmm. and the sin has commenced. Right? But for Jesus, he goes to the, the, the greatest degree of that temptation and does not give in to that. So I think it's important to see when we read about the uh, temptation here, um, it certainly gives us an example that when we are tempted, the way that Jesus combats temptation right. uh, is to go to the scriptures. Right? We hide the word of God in our heart, Psalm 119 says, so that we would not sin against God. Right? But there's something more that is going on in Matthew 4 than just giving us an example. In fact, throughout the Gospels, we see examples that Jesus gives to those who follow him, but there's something more that is going on. And the more is that the Gospels are written to identify who Jesus is, right? And so the core element of this temptation has to do uh, with who Jesus is, right? So if we just go back to Matthew 4, verse 1. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. I think it's important the location here is a wilderness, just as Israel was in the wilderness. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So 40 days and 40 nights reminds us of the 40 years that Israel was in the wilderness. And they were in the wilderness for 40 years because for 40 days... Uh, the spies were in the land, came back and bought, brought a bad report. And because of that, God brings judgment upon them, casting them in the wilderness for 40 years. In some ways, Jesus comes as a true Israelite. Here's a new Israel. He's functioning or he's acting in this way because he's going to be the true son of Israel. Verse 3 goes on and says, The tempter came and said to him, If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. That's the temptation. Are you truly the Son of God? If you are the Son of God, God wouldn't abandon you out here. But rather, you can use your power to be able to conjure up bread out of these stones. Right. So what does Jesus do? He quotes from the Old Testament, but not just any place. He quotes from Deuteronomy 8, which is speaking about Israel grumbling in the wilderness. He quotes a passage, Deuteronomy 8, verse 3, Man should not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, Satan is wanting to tempt Jesus to show that he is the Son of God by displays of great power. Jesus shows that he's the Son of God by great displays of trust and faithfulness and obedience to God. 
Right? He's entrusting himself to his Father. You know, again, in verse 6, the question comes, if you are the Son of God, that's the issue. Right? He is tempting to grab a hold of the kingdom that is promised to the Son of God instead of obeying the Father and waiting for the Father to grant him the kingdom that is to come. That's good. In Matthew 5, 33 through 37, um, actually, I'll just read uh, 33 and 34. Mm -hmm. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool, of, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of our great king. So I read through 35 there. Mm -hmm. So, but what does it mean when it says do not take an oath? And the reason why I ask that question is, yeah. for example, we live in the Washington, D.C. area, mm -hmm. which is full of government and um, military yeah. uh, workers. Yeah. And when you are employed by the government or mm -hmm. the military, yeah. you take an oath. Yeah. Um, they actually call it an oath. So sure. I, I wanted to just dive into that word here as it's used in the Bible yeah. and in contrast to how we may use it in today's world. Yeah, no, it's, that's a good question. Um, you know, Last summer, uh, we, we uh, studied through the Sermon on the Mount, and one of our pastors, Jared Bridges, spoke on this passage, and uh, if people don't remember what he said on that, I thought he provided a really helpful sermon on that. We can link to that so that people can go back and listen to that to answer that in far more depth than what I'll give here. Uh, but I think the key thing uh, is that Jesus is saying that let your yes be yes and your no be no, right? Verse 37. And it's not as though that what we need to say is, okay, um, sometimes I don't actually keep my word, so in order to be more truthful, I'm going to swear an oath on top of that. Right. Really, every word that we speak should be an oath. Right. right. So I don't think those who have to take an oath when they are serving in, in government or um, those who are serving in the military who swear an oath to defend the Constitution, uh, right, that that is something that they should uh, feel um, uh, guilty about as though they're breaking this. There have been those in the church who have uh, separated themselves from the government. So the Anabaptist tradition is one who has done that. I don't think that's necessary. I think that's it's overreading this text. Uh, rather, it's simply saying that our words uh, should be true words, and we shouldn't have to swear by anything greater than ourselves um, to speak true words. Rather because we have been redeemed by the truth of the gospel and we've had the law written on our heart, what comes out of our mouth should be truth. In Matthew 6, 1 through 4, it's, we read about um, giving to the needy, mm -hmm. about um, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen. And if we drop down a little further, it talks about um, not sounding your, our own trumpet before us. Um, as the hypocrites in the synagogues do. So we read that we are not to give in such a manner as to draw attention or glory to ourselves. Do you think that this concept um, of seeking glory for the work we do uh, for Christ applies to just giving or every aspect of our Christian walk? Yeah, I mean, again, uh, any area of our Christian walk <laughs> can be polluted by our own vain glory. Right? I think that's why verse 1 says, Bef Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. 
uh, for then you'll have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So that's kind of the banner that hangs over the top of Matthew 6, 1, all the way to verse 18, right? And so these three acts of giving and praying and fasting are all ways that we can go astray, right? And of course today the same can be true even in our Bible reading, yeah. right? We can be going around boasting in our Bible reading, right? And yet ultimately, what's the reward of our Bible reading? It's to know God, right? It's to delight in Him. Um, you know, so our hearts are so proud and they're so prone to make much of ourselves. Uh, and, and so Jesus is reminding us that uh, beware of that. Right. Uh, and perhaps one of the great ways that he teaches us to fight against that is to find our joy and our delight in God. Mm-hmm. And when we do, then it gives us power to say no to those fleeting pleasures of the applause we gain from men, the likes that we get on Facebook, Right, all the different things that are out there that would say, yeah, you're doing great. In the day, we live for, well done, my good and faithful servant, and the joy that we find in the Lord himself. You know, I would almost say that it could be um, compared, or it definitely um, ties into when we talk about laying up treasures. Mm. Uh, and the reason why I say that is, is for some people, uh, for some of us, I would say that those likes and uh, all that attention that we get when we do stuff or if we have a talent or ability mm-hmm. that brings us uh, attention or glory, mm-hmm. that is our treasure on earth. Yeah. Um, and, you know, whether it be awards or there's nothing wrong with getting an award and there's nothing wrong, obviously, with being talented. But mm-hmm. I think the, the issue comes in where um, we, we count that higher than the things of God. And then I think that may be what the Bible in verse 19 that we're, we're looking at here um, is talking about when it says laying up. Um, your treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up your cells treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. Yeah. No, I think that's right. I mean, uh, you know, the temptation that came to Jesus, you know, if you're the son of God, do this, right? Well, the scripture speaks of those who are in Christ as sons and daughters of God as well. Right. right? And we can say, you know, Satan can tempt and whisper in our ears, if you are truly who you say you are, a follower of Jesus, a son of God, then it will be proven by these things, right? Uh, There will be blessing in your life. There will be prosperity in your life. Your family will look a certain way with your children obeying the way that they ought to obey. No, sometimes it comes with great suffering. Sometimes it comes a great trial. Uh, what we see in front of us is not the reality necessarily uh, of, of what is going to take place for eternity. Right? Right. There will be a great reversal at the end of the age, and the sons and daughter of God are the ones who suffer well now, holding fast in faith to God, storing up treasures in heaven. That, that, that's where our hope is, when Christ comes again and he makes all things new. That's right. We, when we jump down to Matthew 7, um, Verse 1 starts off with, judge not that you be not judged. I've mm-hmm. heard that so many times. And ironically, it seems to be um, the, one, of the, one of the few scriptures that people who have never read a Bible seem to know. Yeah. And um, they'll, they'll throw that up as a, um, I don't know, I guess as a judgment against us sometimes yeah. that we are judging them. Yep. But uh, I wonder when I read down a little further and it talks about, well, I wonder when I read verses one through verses five, through verse five, mm-hmm. um, at some point it looks like it's telling us that we should not 
um, it's not telling us to not judge, but it's telling us how to judge. Yeah. And um, what would you have to say in, about that? Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, again, anytime we, we just hear one verse that's kind of thrown out there, especially right. one that's as prevalent as uh, Matthew 7, verse 1, it says, okay, what's the context say? Right? And the rest of the section here uh, gives us a really clear indication, first of all, um, that we're not to have a judgmental attitude, right? right. And that's one of the big things, right? But it doesn't say that we shouldn't be discerning or that we shouldn't judge, right? And so, first of all, it's helpful to see um, that who is he talking about here? If you look at verse 3, it says, Why do you see the speck in your brother's eye? Verse 4, or how can you say to your brother? Uh, or verse 5, at the very end, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. He's not talking about going out and just judging the sinners of the world. Right. And I think that's how so many Christians have um, actually brought shame on the name of Christ, and they haven't shown the compassion of Christ. But really, this is a kind of spurring brothers and sisters on in the Lord, right? If we turn to a passage like 1 Corinthians 5, Right? Paul says that we are to judge those inside the church, not those outside the church. Right? Those outside the church, we need to proclaim the gospel to them. Right? That there is a judgment that is coming, and there is an offer of salvation to, to those outside of Christ to come and find salvation in him. But then those inside the church who've, who have called themselves disciples, followers of Christ, we are to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. Right? To be able to say, okay, this is what the Word of God says. And brother, this is the observations that I'm seeing in your life. And they don't match. Let's talk about that. Right? The most loving thing that you can do for me, Anton, is say, look, I've seen the way that you've been talking or acting or speaking or just this habit that is there. And say, what's going on? Right? Because that's not the way that Christians conduct themselves. Can, can I pray for you? Can I help you with that? Yeah. Right? So I think that's the heart that is going on there, and then it gives some instructions to, before going and presenting that to someone else, to search our own hearts, to take the log out of our own eye, mm-hmm. to make sure that we know what's going on, uh, to have the right information, uh, and then to pursue that brother with, um, with gentleness, with patience, but also with boldness in those situations. So you bring up something very interesting. Yeah. All right, so when we talk about um, this being um, primarily for for speaking to uh, us in Christ, brothers and sisters in Christ, and how we should come alongside each other to help each other grow in Christ. So in verses 15 through 20, um, we find out about false prophets. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that is so prevalent in today's um, churches is that pastors are afraid, seemingly, um, seemingly afraid to call sin, sin. Mm -hmm. Um, And I wonder sometimes if it's it's because of the passage uh, about judging Mm -hmm. um, or if it's because they don't want to lose members or I'm not really sure, but it does seem like that we have become very sensitive in the church and we have abandoned um, a lot of times the ability or the the wanting to Mm -hmm. come alongside each other, um, to help each other when you see a brother or sister falling short in love, of course. But um, so are we current? Do you do you see that we are are or do you feel that we are currently having an issue um, with false prophets in our current church? Um, yeah, again, so even just defining church, right? I mean, so 
each local church is going to have its own commitment to the gospel or some deviation from that. Right. right. And the more that a church is centered on, on the gospel, then there is a necessity to address what sin is. Right. Right. And to be able to say, this is why Jesus Christ came. Right. He came to, to die for sin and to pronounce the good news. But that good news is not just prosperity here and now. It's not just the message that everything's going to go better for you in Jesus. But no, like we're sinners. We're wicked and wretched in and of ourselves, right? That issue, going back to Genesis 6, as we saw in the last episode, is like continual evil in our hearts, right? That's who we are apart from Jesus Christ. And the only hope that I have is the change that he renders through his death and resurrection, the gift of the Spirit and the gift of the Word written on the heart. So if a church is committed to the gospel, then it must be committed to calling out sin. Mm-hmm. Now, it's possible that a church that is committed to the gospel can always be talking about the sins of the world yeah, and actually doesn't address the sins of the heart. And so just one of the things I remember from my preaching class in seminary was, yeah, let's talk about the sin that's in the culture, but never without addressing our own sins. Right. Right. And actually allowing that as a means by which we're examining ourselves with the word of God and then coming back to the hope of redemption that we have in Christ. Now, another church that may be less inclined to the gospel because they are, you know, for lack of better terms, seeker sensitive, right? They order their church service not for the believers, but for the unbelievers. And they have a methodology that says, okay, we just get them in the doors by whatever means. We'll get to know them and all of that. And then we'll kind of slip in Jesus. Like, well, is church for the believer or the unbeliever? Right. right? We believe it is for the believer that is the gathering of God's people, the disciples of Christ, to learn more about him, to worship him there, and certainly want to invite it for unbelievers to come. See, this is what Christian people do. Right. Actually, I think we see that in the Sermon on the Mount. Right. In the Sermon on the Mount, who is Jesus speaking to? It's his disciples. But there are crowds that gather around them. And I think that's a good model for us. That when we're preaching on Sunday mornings, we're addressing disciples of Christ with the Word of God, but we're also paying attention to the fact that there are unbelievers here, children who are here who don't know Christ, and we want to address them as well. But again, church is not for the unbeliever, it's for the believer, and inviting others to come and be a part of that. And if we keep that in mind, it protects us from falling into that pattern of deviation that just says, okay, we're going to say something kind of, you know, just... um, smiley, positive, make you feel good kind of message. Like, no, we want a message of hope. And that message of hope then is centered on the cross and resurrection of Christ for the forgiveness of sins. So in uh, Matthew 7, 21 through 23, um, 23, verse 23 specifically, um, well, I'll just read all three verses. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, for you workers of lawlessness. Mm -hmm. So when you read this, um, I've heard people say, go both ways on it. Like use this as a scripture to say that it is possible to lose your salvation. Mm. Some people say that um, uh, in this instance, the people who are making the claim, um, Lord, Lord, um, we've prophesied and done these things in your name that they were never actually Christians, that they were doing it for 
um, out of their own motivations versus what, what God would have them do. Mm-hmm. Um, how, do, how do we look at this? Yeah, so again, when we come to any passage of Scripture and those kind of big theological questions come up, right, it's always good to interpret Scripture with other Scripture, especially the immediate context of what is being said here. Um, but also there's just some, some fundamental passages that, that describe those who have eternal life right. can't lose eternal life. <laughs> right. It wouldn't be eternal anymore. Right? <laughs> yeah. Uh, that those who have been born again can't be unborn again. Those who have the Spirit um, are secured. They're sealed with the Spirit. So uh, certainly the New Testament teaching from the New Covenant is that you can't lose your salvation um, if that person has been truly born again. However, Scripture also talks about the fact that it's possible to believe in vain, meaning that person did not, uh, they weren't born again, right? Right. They, They may have had a time of, you know, positive thinking towards the things of God, mm-hmm. but maybe again it was faith in Jesus for some other end, right? right. Somebody who went to church in order to get a girl, <laughs> yeah. right? And instead of going to church to get Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. Jesus is never a means to another end, right? So a passage like this does make us examine our heart, say, okay, um, are we just doing the works for God in this case? And, and really in the context here, I think Jesus is dealing with the false prophets, uh, he is dealing uh, with those teaching at that time, right? Right. So who's he addressing? He's addressing the false teachers in Israel at that time, mm. right? And he is saying that these who are teaching you, uh, you have heard it said, right? That's what he says earlier in Matthew 5. You've heard it said from these teachers, and oh, and by the way, they are false teachers who thought they were doing the will of the Father, even thought they were doing the will of the Father by killing the Son, right? By crucifying the Messiah, because they didn't know they, they were wrong in their thinking, he is telling them on that last day when the judgment comes, he will say, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So those who thought they were doing the religious right thing were actually not because they were deceived in their understanding. Again, I think scripture teaches clearly that those who are born again by the Spirit of God will not lose their salvation. But again, many religious workers uh, who are not born again, can be doing things in the name of God and can be leading many people astray. We're going to move down to Matthew eight eighteen. This here, we're talking about the cost. Mm-hmm. Is there a cost for following Christ? Yeah. Um, and not just because the ESV Bible has put that in the subheading, right? <laughs> right. Um, if we just look at, at Matthew 8, 18 through 22 says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me and leave the dead to bury their dead, their own dead. Now, First read, it's like, well, that's just so cruel, mm-hmm. right? I mean, what, what in the world is Jesus doing? Like, man, this is just, these are some hard sayings. And on one hand, that's true. On the other hand, again, we understand this best when we read it in the context of the Old Testament, right? Who in the Old Testament could not touch a dead body? Priests. The priests were the ones in Leviticus 21 
who were restricted from touching a dead body because they would become impure mm -hmm. and therefore unable to serve the Lord. The Levites became the servants of God when they uh, actually turned the swords on their brothers in Deuteronomy, excuse me, in Exodus 32. In Exodus 32, they stood with Moses and actually cut down about 3,000 men in Israel for their sins. Right. And God rewarded them with priestly service. It even says in Deuteronomy 33, it's because of their loyalty to God and their willingness to turn away from their brothers and their fathers that they were able to be priests. So what is Jesus saying? I think he's inviting his disciples to come and to be priest with him. Right. Right. In other words, you must be wholly devoted to me, even so much that you would not go and bury the dead. At this time, the old covenant was still in place, right? So that's going to change very soon. But here he is saying to them, uh, you're not going to have a place to lay your head. In fact, that also is something like the Levites who did not have land in the Old Testament, right. right? but rather their inheritance was to serve with the Lord. So those disciples, their inheritance is being in the service and the presence of God. And I mean, how applicable is that to us today, right? Our hope is not what we can get our hands on in this day and age, right? It's not in our health. It's not in our homes. It's not in anything else today. Like our inheritance is what is found in Christ's resurrection. Right and the new heavens and the new earth to come. Amen. Doesn't mean that we're not faithful with the things that God has given us today, but it does mean that we're faithful with these things today that are gonna pass away for that greater kingdom that Christ is bringing. Let's take a look at Matthew 8, 28 and 29. And when he came to the other side to the country of Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tomb so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they, cry, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So what is the demon in the context of the Bible? What are we looking at here? Yeah, I would say it's a fallen angel, right? Um, so at some point in redemptive history past, uh, God who created all things good, created angels to worship around his throne, uh, and there was a rebellion of the angels, right? So these fallen angels now uh, have come and they are wreaking havoc on the earth. And we see this at the time of Christ where there is a spiritual warfare that is going on, right? So he often is exercising unclean demons or unclean spirits from people. Uh, this would be an example of this where um, these uh, demon-possessed men uh, are, are healed uh, by Jesus. And he's right. showing his power over uh, the demonic spirits. So I think simply put, um, demons are, are fallen angels. Uh, and they, at this time, are, are seen in some very unique ways. Uh, we certainly know that demonic experience have not gone away in our age, that they're <laughs> right, still yeah. at work today. Uh, but again, they're not typically coming, knocking on our door in somebody who has a shirt that says, Joe the Satanist, right? I mean, they're much more subtle than that, right? And we, again, we see them with our ears, right? We hear the false teachings and the Christ-denying Gospels uh, that are out there. Uh, and in that, uh, we see the way that satanic forces are continuing to work in our world. So David, thank you so much for answering our questions today. Um, for those who are out there listening, if you do have questions about the daily readings, um, or you find questions within the daily readings, uh, you can send them to via Emmaus at obc.org, and you may hear your response on our upcoming episodes. Um, do you have any closing comments, David? Uh, yeah, just keep reading the Bible. Uh, together, let's read the Bible better.
All right, thank you so much. Via Emmaus is a podcast of Occoquan Bible Church in Woodbridge, Virginia. Our prayer is that you would read the Bible and read the Bible better. For more resources related to this episode and the gospel-centered ministry of God's Word, visit obc.org.